0: Um, great, I would love to pray for us as we, uh, come to the teaching text today. So would you join me, let's pray. Lord, would you open our hearts and our minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read, and God, as your truth is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you have to say to us today, and we pray it together in Christ's name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Carolyn. Good
1: morning, Mars Hill. Um, Our teaching text today is from Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. This can be found on page 863 in your Shed Bible. The prophecy that Habakkuk the prophet received. How long, Lord, must I call for help? but you do not listen, or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails." The wicked hem in the righteous, so that justice is perverted. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thanks be to God So we've just got a couple of weeks left in this series, this series that we started way back in the middle of October. Um, You'll hear a little bit more about this coming soon, but uh, in a couple weeks when we begin Lent, we will step into something new. But I'm excited today uh, for us to continue this series on faithfully curious questions with the book of Habakkuk, this short little three-chapter book in the Old Testament. Before I do that, first, I wonder how many of you are Team Habakkuk? How many of you are Team Habakkuk? Show of hands, Team Habakkuk. Team Habakkuk, yep i I recognize that you 're going to hear me say Habakkuk, but just to clarify it once and for all, here it is in Hebrew <laughs> Problem solved right you 're welcome there it is. I will say Habakkuk um, why Habakkuk? Why this book in this particular series. I've been really moved by a a biblical scholar named Elizabeth Actmeyer. She does great work, particularly on the minor prophets. And uh, she, I found her work on Habakkuk to be really moving. She says this about this particular book. Habakkuk is for faithful people of whatever era who find themselves in the meantime. Isn't that a nice phrase? Who find themselves in the meantime, a time Between when God's promises were first revealed and when God's promises are fully realized or actualized, in the meantime, Um, around here sometimes we talk about this as an already not yet reality. God's promises have already been announced, but they have—they are not yet fully actualized. They're not yet fully realized. We live in this meantime. That's partly why this book continues to be for us evergreen. It's why we can approach it all these years along and say, why do we continue to take this seriously? Because you find in the book of Habakkuk the sense that, this question, aren't things supposed to be better? We live in this meantime, but aren't things supposed to be better? But at the very least, aren't things supposed to be getting better? Because God's promised particular things and we may not already be there fully realizing those things, but shouldn't things be getting better? Instead, as you heard Carolyn read, Habakkuk is saying, here's how the world looks. There's violence and destruction and strife and conflict. And it's the the laws, these agreements, these boundaries that are supposed to Govern our common life, they are lifeless. They're paralyzed. They have no efficacy. They have no power. And justice always loses. Good thing. Good thing that's just describing the past, right? One thing I want to clarify when we come to the book of Habakkuk, this is not a book, this is not a prophet who's expressing doubt. Habakkuk doesn't struggle to believe that God will. Habakkuk is confused. Habakkuk is a book of perplexity. Habakkuk is a book that's saying, God, I, why aren't you? Not, I don't think you can, but God, why aren't you? And it's for these couple reasons I feel like coming to this particular book in our day and age seems to make a lot of sense. And the faithfully curious question we want to ask today, along with Habakkuk, is why do you make me look at injustice? And in the same breath, Habakkuk, right at the very beginning of this book, says also, and God, why do you tolerate wrongdoing? A faithfully curious question. And I wonder that question for us. God, why would you make us look at injustice? Why would you want us? Why would you be calling us to look, to look around us at injustice, to look around us at all that is broken and not right? Why would that be important for us? Why would that be a faithfully curious evergreen question for us? I hope as we do a breeze through Habakkuk that that might get just a slight bit clearer for us. And I also want to say that any sermon, a one-off sermon about injustice is going to be not enough. And particularly not enough from me. But I want to take a crack at it. Um, My daughter Maggie brought this to me a couple of mornings ago. It's 7.15 in the morning, by the way. And she says... Daddy, can you please fix this? This is an old-fashioned, whatever, metal, steel, thing, whatever that thing is. And I look at it, and I'm like, and I said, oh, Maggie, <laughs> no, Daddy can't fix this. No, I can't fix this. And she goes, Daddy, don't say no. Daddy, please just say yes, and please fix this. And I try to plead with my little girl and I say, sweetheart, this is an, an impossible, tangled mess. I don't even know where to begin. And that's how I feel about today's sermon. <laughs> that's how I feel about the subject of injustice. That's how I feel about every conversation that might have a bit of injustice about it anybody else feel like you don't even know where to begin when subjects come up like racism and food insecurity, and climate crisis, and refugees, and healthcare, and gun violence, and war, and discriminations of all kinds, and poverty, and economic justice, and housing, and reproductive rights, and voting rights, and educational inequality, and all the dozens and dozens of other things I didn't even mention. Anybody else feel like you don't have any idea where to begin? Yeah, yeah. Where do we even begin with these seemingly impossible tangled messes? So my aim as we breeze through Habakkuk is to suggest three answers to the question, God, why do you make me look at injustice? God, why why might it be important that we would look at injustice? First answer I want to suggest is this. It's because God calls us to look. So Habakkuk begins, it's an interesting book, it's this dialogue, Habakkuk complains and God answers, and Habakkuk complains and God answers. It's a great picture here of a conversation. And so Habakkuk begins, as we heard, he has all these questions, and he says, God, why would you have me look at this? And God's answer is, look. Did you see what happened? Why would you have me look? And God says, look. I would think Habakkuk is not happy with that as a response. Why would you have me look and God says, look, I'm harping here, I'm stopping here on that very first word because I want, I think it's really important that we would say from the outset that it's very easy, it's very tempting not to look it's very easy, it's very tempting to look away. It's very easy and very tempting to look elsewhere. But from the start, God is saying, look. I know for some of us, when these things come up, we, we might wonder, we might actually say, well, why look way over there? I mean, that's Gaza. Or that's the Sudan. Or that's Europe. Or that's those other crazy states in our country. Why look over there? Or why look way back then? That's the past. That's the history. We're here. We're now. We want to move forward. And for some of us, we may find ourselves saying, I can't look. That'll give me nightmares. That'll stay stuck in my mind, and my brain. I can't look. That'll literally make me want to be sick. And yet, at the very beginning, God is saying to Habakkuk, and I believe God is saying to us, look. Uh, Scott Hower, he's a, a theologian, he wrote this really great book um, talking about suffering and injustice and what he calls the horrors of the world, particularly looking at them through a Trinitarian perspective. But at the beginning of his book, Scott Hauer says this, um, that once we know what the horrors are, we can do something about them, or at least ask God to help do something about our lives when the horrors invade. And I think what Howard is trying to say is that many of us need to look in order to know what the horrors actually are. This is not meant to be shaming. But I gotta say that many of us need to look because we live simply distant from most of the horrors We live distant from most of the injustices. Then we're not very close to them. Most of us, many of us, we're on the favorable side of the red line. Many of us are on the favorable side of the police treatment. Many of us are on the favorable side of the economic divide. Many of us are on the favorable side of the systemic disadvantages throughout history. Many of us get to opt out of looking. Many of us have the luxury of electing to look when we want to. So God calls us to look, to look and to watch. Pay attention to what is going on. Look so that you might learn how to mourn. Look so that you might feel deeply. Look so that you might get a glimpse of conviction. Look so that you might empathize. Look so that you might learn. Look so that you might know. Look so that you might pray specifically. But not only that, God says, look and watch so that you might see God's activity because, get this, God promises to utterly amaze. God says to Habakkuk, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told who doesn't want this promise to be true? Who among us doesn't want these words of the Lord to be absolutely true, particularly in light of injustice? God is going to utterly amaze, do work in our day that we wouldn't even believe. And in order to see this, in order to be amazed, it requires that we look and we watch. We look so that we might be amazed. So let's you and I push through our discomfort. Let's push through our tendency to scroll quickly past. Let's push through our compassion fatigue. Let's push and look as God calls us. Second, answer to the question, why do you make me look at injustice? Is because that is an opportunity to see our own blind spots. So God says, look and watch. I'm going to do something that you wouldn't even believe. You wouldn't believe even if I told you. And then God tells him. He tells Habakkuk. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to raise up the Babylonians. Now, the book of Habakkuk takes place probably around the sixth century BC and there's a, a transition as a power transition happening. So the people, the lands have been ruled previously by the Assyrians and now there's a change of power. Now the Syrians have been overcome and they're now, the, everyone's being ruled by the Babylonians. And so it's the oppressor that Habakkuk has been complaining about. And then God says, so here's my plan. I'm going to raise the oppressor up. And I would imagine that Habakkuk, on hearing this as God's plan, would say, well, that's not a very good plan. I don't care for that idea whatsoever. And so Habakkuk begins to complain again, the end of chapter 1 into chapter 2. He complains, God, why would you do that? That doesn't sound like you. This doesn't sound like something you would do. Complains, complains, and then he closes by saying this, so I'm going to sit back and I'm going to wait for you to answer. And the bulk of chapter 2 of Habakkuk is God's answer to Habakkuk's second complaint. And what happens, it looks on the surface like what Habakkuk is doing is he's just saying, you're right, Habakkuk, the Babylonians aren't great. Here are all the things that they've been doing wrong. All the ways that they've behaved wrongly, they've behaved badly, they've been unjust. But if you read a little closer... I think what we're also seeing in the book of chapter 2 is not just commentary about the Babylonians. We're seeing commentary about God's people. We're seeing commentary about the people to whom Habakkuk belongs. God is saying it's not just the Babylonians have been unjust, but God's people have also behaved badly. God's people have also acted unjustly. And I think we're getting a glimpse here That one of the reasons why we look at injustice is because looking at injustice can highlight for us the ways that we also act unjustly. That it reveals to us our own blind spots. It reminds us that we cannot stand outside of injustice and claim complete innocence. That we can't stand outside of injustice and claim that we're on the right side of history. That we have to recognize that we also are unjust, that you and I, in big and small ways, that we perpetuate injustices in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our schools, big and small ways that we manipulate, big and small ways that we exploit power dynamics, Big and small ways that we take advantage of those who are weaker than us. Big and small ways that we dehumanize. That we are all perpetuating injustice. That we all have blind spots when it comes to acts and behaviors and patterns of injustice. And humbly looking at injustice that's happening among the nations can illuminate for us the ways that we need to confess the ways that we need to own up to our own acts of injustice. Towards the middle of chapter two, God says this, says, here's what's, here's what's coming. What's coming is this. The whole earth is going to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Everything is going to be made clear. Everything's going to be revealed. Everything's going to be illuminated. Nothing will be hidden. And the logical conclusion to that full revelation, the logical conclusion to all things being known, well, that's how chapter two ends. Chapter two ends with these words. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all of the earth be silent before him. Everyone will be silent before the perfect judge. Everyone will be silent. There will be nothing left to say when everything is illuminated. All the blind spots will be made known. Everything will be made clear. We all have these. The day is coming when they will be revealed. The invitation is to look at injustice now and to pay attention to our own blind spots. There's an opportunity when looking at injustice to to humbly and to honestly face and to name what is ours to name. Our unjust behaviors, all the things that we have done and all the things we have left undone. And then finally, I want to say that an answer to the question, why do you make me look at injustice is because our ways and our desires are reoriented. So we come to the chapter three and Habakkuk, you, you, you get a sense that there's a slight change in the tone of Habakkuk. Throughout this whole thing, he's been complaining and he's been wanting God to make things Right? And God has been illuminating, right? He's been speaking. And then Habakkuk comes into chapter 3, and it's a little bit less make things right, and it's this. Oh, God, remember your mercy. And I can't help but wonder if what we're seeing here is a bit of a glimpse, maybe Habakkuk, as God is telling this narrative, which is not just about Babylon, but which is about God's people, which is about Habakkuk. If Habakkuk is saying, oh, those are my blind spots. God, don't just make it right, but be merciful because I need that mercy. And Habakkuk begins to then recount. He begins to tell the story of God's faithful activity throughout all of history. And he does it in a really creative way and and he, he highlights unusual events, unusual activities. God's exercising and using plagues, talking about the physical world crumbling away, talking about the earth literally shaking. And what Habakkuk, I think, is happening here Habakkuk is seeing all of these unusual events, all of these things that have been happening throughout history. These have all been for the express purpose of God accomplishing what God wanted accomplished the whole time. This is God working out God's will. Habakkuk is being reoriented in this way. He's seeing, I I think this is happening. Habakkuk is, in some way, he's prefiguring Jesus. Certainly all of Jesus' earthly life, but particularly I think he's prefiguring Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the spirit that Jesus has in the Garden of Gethsemane where he says, not my will but yours be done. I think Habakkuk is taking on, is prefiguring this spirit and saying he's recognizing that God has been at work even when it didn't make sense to Habakkuk. Even when he couldn't see it, even when it wasn't the way Habakkuk would have done it, even when it wasn't on the timeline that Habakkuk wanted, even when it wasn't actually going as he had hoped it would go, he's recognizing God has been working the whole time and Habakkuk is being reoriented. His desires and his ways are being reoriented. Achtmeier uses this wonderful phrase when she she says, remember, God is the eternal worker, God is the eternal worker, never stopping, always working. Reminds me of that moment, Jesus' words, and the Gospel of John, where he says, my father, my father is always at work, always at work, to this very day. And I wonder, friends, if we don't recognize the work because we are looking for things to be done in the way and we are looking for things to be done in the time that we would want them. That we need to be reoriented, that our hearts and our minds and our desires need to be reoriented to be reminded that God's ways are not our ways. That our desires and our approaches, our timelines, they they need to all be submitted and reoriented to God's. We do that partially by remembering and recounting, telling the story over and over and over again of God's faithful activity throughout history to remind us it's always a surprise It's always different than what we would want. It's always different than the way that we would do it. It's always different than, and we pray for mercy. (laughs) We pray for mercy when we know that our desires lead the way, and we ask, God, would more of your work be done in our day? Would more of your work be done? Your will, God, not mine, be done. So where does this leave us? This little book of Habakkuk. I want to suggest that an open-hearted, spirit-illuminated look at injustice can reorient us to God's timings and to God's unique actions in history. That an open-hearted, spirit-illuminated look at injustice can highlight our own blind spots and can lead us together and individually to confess and to own what is ours to own and to realign ourselves with God. And an open-hearted, spirit-illuminated look at injustice can enable us, friends, to be utterly amazed as we look and as we are shocked by the ways that God fulfills God's purposes, the ways that God actually continues to work and to do in surprising ways what God has always desired to be done. And I believe, I believe all of this leads to what is the culmination of the book of Habakkuk a book which ends, in my opinion, with some of the most moving and beautiful verses in the whole Bible. As we witness God's faithfulness, as we confess our complicity, as we submit to God's timelines and to God's ways, we can indeed be moved to join the closing verses of the third chapter of Habakkuk. Though the fig tree does not bud, There are no grapes on the vine Though the olive crop fails And the fields produce no food Though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls Yet I will rejoice I will rejoice in the Lord and I will be joyful in God my Savior. that's stunning? Even in the worst of situations. And that's what Habakkuk is trying to, to picture here, the worst situation you can possibly imagine, even in the worst of all situations even when all that appears to be true is destruction and violence and strife and conflict and an ineffective law and justice that's always on the losing end, even in those moments, we can patiently wait for the appointed time. We can patiently wait for when God's will and God's promises will be completely and fully realized. And at that time, the earth will know and all will be silent before the goodness and the holiness and the power and the perfection of God. And in the meantime, which is where we are, in the meantime, our pounding hearts and our quivering lips our decaying bones and our trembling limbs, our confused hearts and minds, our impatient desires and wills, the parts of us that constantly cry out, please, God, don't say no. Please just say yes and fix all of these seemingly impossible and completely tangled messes. Even in those mean times, we look to the sovereign Lord who is our strength, who makes our feet like the feet of a deer, who enables us to tread on the heights. So to close, hear the good news in the words of Elizabeth Actmyer one more time. Good will be our name and the character of our people. Good will be our hearts and our relationships with one another. Good will be the earth again as God intended it in the beginning. For God is good. And his goodness will rule his creation. Come, Lord Jesus, come. And thanks be to God.